I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's difficult to live with in America is um, the emphasis we put on the self and the achievements of the self when we know, I think, deep inside, this is the wrong way to go. Mm -hmm. The encouragement of charismatic personalities or the way many people today are determined to make themselves look interesting mm. or this is all counterproductive. The, the idea is to work together. That was the voice of National Book Award-winning author Barry Lopez, who our own Griffin Olenek interviews for this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. But we also have some big news to share about Commonweal itself. We have redesigned our print issue, and beginning with your September 2019 issue, you will see it. And I'm here with a few of the Commonweal staff to talk about it. This is the Commonweal Podcast. This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal, and I'm here with our senior editor, Matt Boudoy, our managing editor, Kate Lucky, and our business manager, Jim Hannon. And we have a good group of guests today and a varied group of guests because we're talking about something very exciting, and that's the redesign of the print issue of Commonweal, which will debut with our September issue, which by the time you're listening to this will have gone to press. And um, Matt, I'm going to talk to you first and ask you about what were we thinking when we decided to go about this and what, what are we hoping to get out of it? Well, I think we'd been discussing the possibility of becoming a monthly instead of a fortnightly for, for years. And we weren't sure whether to do it. And we also weren't sure when to do it if we decided to do it, because it would represent a big change for us. And it has so far been a, a big change. But we decided to do it because this will give us greater flexibility in the print edition. It will come out half as often. It will be twice as long. And it will have longer articles, more interviews, more commentary from staff writers and editors, and just generally a more varied magazine, and we hope a more interesting one. Meanwhile, it also gives us more flexibility to respond quickly to things that are happening in the news on our website. And you'll see some of that in the print edition, but some of it will just be on the website. So there will be more variety, we hope, in the in the total enterprise, but more variety in the print edition in particular. And I'm looking forward to being able to present readers with longer, more challenging articles that didn't fit into our old format. Sometimes things would be so long and we were so reluctant to cut them that we would end up just saying, well, we'll put them online and if readers really want to stick with it, they can find them there. But but not all of our readers read the website. Some of them are happy with the print edition. And uh, it's a pity that some of our strongest material never made it to print. And we hope that won't be true from now on. For example, we have some excellent features in the first monthly edition, the September issue. We have a really good piece by David Hart that goes into some great detail about the history of marriage, divorce, annulment, in Christianity, in the Catholic Church, and in his own tradition, he's an Orthodox theologian. I think it's one of the strongest things we've published in a while, and it really benefits from having that kind of length. Yeah, good space to, to, to present it. And Jim, you were saying some interesting things, too, about what we're sort of envisioning. We're talking about the way information and readers come to information in this day and age, and I was wondering if you could just sort of tell me what you were telling me offline a little earlier. Well, you know, following on um, Matt's comments— We've been focused all of these years on the evolving information needs of our readers and the manner in which they gather and, and the manner in which they use information. So we then had to reimagine 
the magazine in light of their use of online sources, uh, social media, podcasts, podcasts. Mm -hmm. That was our primary consideration here. And again, following on what Matt said, we have shifted our resources from production of fortnightly issues and invested in the kinds of authors and articles that Matt was talking about. And, you know, I think, I think our readers are going to be very well pleased when, uh, when they see the result of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely really excited. And there's something that has always, uh, over the past couple of years, has stuck out for me. And I think this is something that I've read in sort of business surveys and about how uh, readers interact with information. And there is this kind of way that folks read. Well, they might find something that they get through their social media feed and they'll read the opening paragraph while they're in Twitter. And then they'll maybe go to the website to take a look at the fuller article. And if it's a really long piece, they'll say, hey, you know what, I'm going to pick up the print edition of this and re mm -hmm. you know, read it on the subway or read it when I'm going to bed tonight or take it to the coffee shop or whatever. And I just think that what we're doing here fits that. The, the readers have evolved and the way people come to information has really evolved. And I think we're just doing a, a good job in sort of meeting those needs too. And speaking of the new stuff we're doing, Kate, I know you kind of wanted to draw some attention to that. Yeah. So when you get your print edition in the mail, you'll see a couple of new sections that we haven't had before. The first is right in the front of the book. It's called the comment section. And you'll see their brief comments on things going on in the news by our editorial staff. And so those are signed. They're shorter than the unsigned editorial, which will still appear at the front of the book, but they allow us to provide even more of our thoughts and express what we're talking about as a staff around the lunch table in the print edition. Yeah. And to, to Matt's point too, about sort of being constrained by the old print format, it was like, we kind of had to treat topical issues just with our editorial, which was 750 day in uttered words, that first page of the book. And now we have some opportunity to kind of stretch our legs a little bit and take up some more topics. Exactly. So we're excited about that section. Similarly to that, we have a books and brief section that's going to exist in the middle of our book review section, which will continue to have the longer book reviews that we've been publishing for our entire history. But books and brief, again, gives us an opportunity to quickly draw our readers' attention to books that we may not have the space to review in a longer review. And those are unsigned, but also written by staff and people in our orbit. And also, I think, give a sense of what we're reading and what we're talking about around the office and what books our contributors might be writing or maybe part of our orbit in some way. So mm -hmm. another glimpse into common wheel culture. The whole look in the field of the magazine, too, is kind of going to be a little bit different, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think so. <laughs> absolutely. So you'll see that the design of the magazine is much more cohesive in some ways with the design of our website in terms of the color scheme and how pull quotes are treated. And in the layout of information, it's very readable and very spacious. You'll also notice some fun extra elements that we have been working with designers on, like icons that appear mocked off of the Commonweal globe. And it's just a very fresh read, but also will be very familiar to readers, I think, who have been with us for a while. And that's why we like this design and creative use of art and illustrations as well. Keep an eye out for those. Yeah, yeah lots we want to play to, to print strengths in a way that we haven't before. I mean, the, it'll be on better paper. There will be more and better images of all kinds, including some original art uh, and illustrations, photographs that deserve to be on good paper will now be on good paper <laughs> and they won't be tiny because we'll have the space to, to make them as big as they deserve to be. Yeah. So, Matt, you mentioned the David Bentley Hart piece, but the whole issue is good, as we've all agreed upon. But maybe highlight another favorite or two from the uh, September issue. 
Well, we have, uh, speaking of photography, we have a photo essay by Joseph Sorrentino about the floating gardens of Mexico City, which are under threat because of urban sprawl and climate change in Mexico and pollution. Joseph is primarily a photographer, but he's a photojournalist and he does real important reporting for Mexico for us. Unfortunately, a lot of his best photojournalism has had to appear on quite cheap paper in our fortnightly edition, and that will now change. We also have an extract from Sister Helen Prejean's uh, autobiography, which is coming out this month. We have a, a great review essay by, by James Kloppenberg, a professor, uh, history professor at Harvard, about civil conflict in the age of Trump. We have a data scientist and social scientist named Nicholas Switanik writing about the low voter participation rates in the United States and how that distorts our democracy. So we, we just have a lot of good things through the whole book and a review of George Weigel's new book uh, in our book section. Yeah, and that's the lead book review too. And I think our, our book review section is going to look a little different too. We actually have a book that seems like the designated lead review. Kate, yeah. you, were, you had some other ones too that you, I think you wanted to highlight. Yeah, I, I also want people to know that they'll also see some of I mean, many of these names that we've mentioned are familiar and have appeared in our pages before, but we have some really strong pieces from people that are really part of our wheelhouse. So two of our columnists, Molly Wilson-O'Reilly and Rita Ferrone, appear in this issue. We have a film review from Rand Richards Cooper that I believe is longer than his film reviews has typically mm -hmm. yeah. been able to be, again, because mm -hmm. of some constraints that no longer exist. Kaya Oaks is reviewing a book about Lawrence or Lawrence Ferlinghetti's novel mm -hmm. in the back of the book. And it is Lawrence Ferlinghetti. He just turned 100 this year. Year, so there is sort of this other tie into it as well. Yeah. So lots of familiar things too. And I think that again, plays to our strengths. Yeah. You know, and I want to call attention to a couple things as well. Dan Barry, the New York Times writer has our last word in the upcoming issue, which I will uh, uh, definitely recommend to everybody. And uh, our own Griffin Olenek uh, has an art review of the uh, video artist, uh, Bill Viola, whose work was on, uh, on exhibit in, in Philadelphia. Really good piece. Jim, as business manager, <laughs> I know you read the book front to back too. So was there anything that you got sort of wind of that you're looking forward to? Well, certainly the uh, the David uh, Bentley Hart piece mm -hmm. and really looking forward to being a fan of Sister Prejean, mm -hmm. uh, looking forward to uh, to that excerpt as well. And to buying and reading the, uh, the book itself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you'll be able to do that now, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Won't you? You'll be able to actually buy a copy of Commonwealth. The uh, term fortnightly has come up three times so far in our discussion here. Yeah. And I know that we have an educated audience. They probably will know what fortnightly means, but that was once every two weeks right. or twice a month. Yeah. And we will be 11 times a year. But Jim, those 11 issues now will be available. They will be available on newsstands. Um, when we were a fortnightly, that was not the kind of frequency that newsstand distributors favor. The shelf life is, is way too short. The so-called sell-through rate is very low on these, these types of frequencies. So now with what is essentially a monthly frequency, we are in the distributor's sweet spot in terms of frequency. Uh, so we are rolling out newsstand distribution. And so far, we have limited distribution now with Books A Million and also Barnes & Noble. Uh, and we hope that as our uh, distributor begins to market to more and more outlets, that we're going to be seeing more outlets and that as the sell-through rate, because we've got great issues coming up, increases, that outlets like Barnes & Noble and Books A Million mm -hmm. 
will increase their orders. So again, look for us also on newsstands. And that's a that's a great thing. So yeah. we got the September issue on the way. Be on the lookout for that very soon if you haven't received it already. Our October theology issue is actually already in the works, so get ready for that. And I just want to thank Matt for being here, Kate and Jim. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I'm here with Griffin Olenek, assistant editor, who actually, of course, is our podcast producer as well. Now, Griffin, you had the great pleasure of speaking recently with Barry Lopez, uh, whose most recent book is the Magisterial Autobiography Horizon. So maybe give us some highlights. We were lucky enough to have Barry Lopez himself want to come into the office. He was raised Catholic. He attended a Jesuit prep school here in New York City. And he was apprehensive but excited to actually come to Commonweal. We'd run a profile of him back in the 1990s. Mm. He was an award-winning travel writer, most famous for Arctic Dreams, Mm -hmm. which won the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. So what unfolded as we began speaking was, you know, we talked about the book a lot, but he really wanted to get deep into into his own theology and his unique approach to spirituality, which is informed by his decades-long contact with indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. and travel all around the world. So when you listen to the interview, you'll note how his early Catholicism continues to inform what's become really, I don't want to say syncretistic, but a very open and generous theology and spirituality. Excellent. You read the book as well, I'm assuming. I love the book. It's long. It's over 500 pages, but it's dense and it's rich uh, and it bears repeated readings. And he told me that it was meant to be composed almost musically like a symphony. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Barry, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm so struck by the title Horizon. Can you say a bit about how you arrived at that title? Did it come to you? It was just there from the beginning. Huh. But, you know, the process of writing a book of the scope hmm. is that you'll drown if you don't have hmm. an outline of some sort. Uh, I knew it was called Horizon, and as I began it and got into a second draft, I thought, no, I have to be explicit about this. Because, you know, my belief has been that the, the writer is the, is the servant. Hmm. Um, Eduardo Galeano, a, a, a Uruguayan writer, has passed away, wants to find the writer as the servant of memory. Hmm. And I, I, I asked him once, did you mean the servant of her own memory or his hmm. own memory? Or do you mean the servant of the memory of his or her people? And he said, well, you know, Barry, it's, it's both. Hmm. So I, I feel that I'm trying to remember in the book, I'm trying to remember the harm that has been hmm. caused by human beings hmm. and bring it into the foreground because, you know, tonight we'll all listen to the world news and hear about some other barbaric incursion into somebody's life or into a culture's life and Mm -hmm. we think you know i i think my goodness are we never done with this Mm -hmm. if we don't learn how to have a truly international conversation not only about global climate change and ocean acidification and methane gas pouring out of the tundra we're a sunk ship Mm -hmm. and we have no forms of government that are prepared to cope with what's coming Mm -hmm. and that's why in the beginning of the book, I'm sitting by a pool in a very nice five-star hotel in Honolulu. Yeah. And 
worried about my grandson. You know, I walked him that morning through the Pearl Harbor Monument and tried to explain to him why human beings slaughter each other in numbers this large. Mm. It was an entirely new concept to him. Mm -hmm. I didn't go into any kind of detailed explanation of, you know, what happened in Dresden or mm -hmm. in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It, w it would have been uh, cruel to burden him at the age of eight with that mm -hmm. kind of information. But I, I wanted to be there to help him, and I want him to do well. And so here I am sitting in this hotel in Honolulu. Almost all of the guests are Japanese, mm -hmm. and... I, I'm worried about how I'm going to put this together so that he has the same opportunity to imagine his life that I had. Mm -hmm. And I think that concern for for young people is there throughout the book Certainly. and the effort is to, as gently as I can, but also forcefully say the trouble that faces us is much larger than we're willing to publicly discuss. Mm -hmm. If we spend our energy talking about what a awful, unethical, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, person Donald Trump is, mm. we're, we're missing what's going on here, mm -hmm. and that is that government and business infrastructure mm. shows no sign of being able to help us. Mm -hmm. Collapsing economies are coming unstable markets. I mean, anyone by reading the newspapers for four or five weeks can see what, what the issue is. Yeah. It's not just global climate change or these things that are spoken of more often now, but the, the failure of democracy to defend itself against incursions by people whose primary goal is the accumulation of material wealth. Yeah. So that's going to collapse mm -hmm. through civil war or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then where will we be? And if you combine the effects on agriculture of global climate change and the, the, really the collapse of the 19th century idea of a nation state, we're in, we're in huge trouble. Mm. And the only answer for that is to help each other. Mm -hmm. And that means for this world, not globalization, mm -hmm. but a global awareness. Mm. And then we work in our own neighborhoods to solve the problems that we have with fresh water and food and shelter. And we wave to each other across the abyss mm -hmm. and send each other good wishes. Mm -hmm. But I think the kind of disaster that is coming, will it will be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And lots of people will not make it. Mm. But if we understood some way to encourage and help each other, a lot more of us would figure out how to get through it, how to mm -hmm. get on the other side of it. And I, this sounds like self-promotion, but <laughs> I don't, um, I really am nobody special, but, mm -hmm. I, but I've been immersed in this stuff for a long time. For decades. Yeah. And I, want, I wanted to write a book that would help. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think the book is very... And I'm very straightforward about, uh, I hope, meticulous in presenting mm. these general ideas Certainly. Uh, and offering uh, support for, for the thought. But the, I, I would never want to write a book that did just that. It has to, as the book comes into, you know, toward the end, I want this building sense of possibility mm -hmm. in which some people can place their hope mm. that that's legitimate. It's not a Pollyannish thing. No. So 
It's yeah. like the culmination of that line, this too is us. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, the importance of the arts, the importance of uh, not just literature, painting, um, but especially music. And uh, there's a really moving moment in the book uh, where you talk about your own attraction to music and some of the, the failures that music has made you aware of. You had the opportunity to meet with, uh, near your home in Oregon, with um, the Estonian composer Arvo Pert yes. uh, and his wife. And you describe an encounter which produced tears. And you mentioned that Arvo Pert's um, wife talked about his music as having the ability to reassemble yes. the human person. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about that. Sure. What, where are we going to find reassembly? <laughs> well, the, the background for this was I was working on an archaeological site in the Canadian High Arctic and the people we were, uh, whose homes we were excavating, mm. who lived there eight or nine hundred years ago, were called Thule mm -hmm. culture people, T-H-U-L-E. They're mm -hmm. what you would call proto-Eskimo. The, their progeny became Inuit mm -hmm. people. And it has been my habit for a long time to bring music on like in those days on a Walkman, you know, a little mm -hmm. cassette player to bring music and I'd stick it under my pillow. I could hear it through the pillow and I know I wouldn't disturb anybody else. Mm. So I'd play different pieces of music that seemed in the beginning seemed appropriate to the, to the area I was in. Mm. So... I decided one night that the Beethoven Ninth mm. is one of the most beautiful pieces of music that anyone in Western culture has produced. Mm -hmm. And it, I got it into my head that I wanted to take my little Sony Walkman with its tinny speakers <laughs> to this, the remains of this Thule village and explain what we were like as a people in the West and this this was something this was the best of of, of some of the work that mm -hmm. we do and just to say this is what we did in sort of asking what what about you right, what, <laughs> right. you know what's but i walked into a trap of my own making i it i had begun the first movement and realized that this is one of the most despicable racist things i had mm -hmm. ever done in my life mm -hmm. I felt like a trespasser, an inauthentic human being, that I was imposing, doing exactly what I have always told people who asked me. I was doing what I told them not to do, mm -hmm. which instead of going someplace and listening, you're going to go and talk. Mm -hmm. And there I was, essentially, even though it was a piece of music, I was talking. I was mm -hmm. telling people what beauty is. Mm -hmm. I was, I had a tremendous sense of shame. Mm -hmm. And after the first movement, I shut the thing down and apologized and left. Mm -hmm. And when I was walking back, you know, a mile or so to my camp, I could not understand what was going on emotionally, except that I had done something both morally and ethically wrong. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to repair it. I lost faith in myself, mm. and when it when I when it came to writing the book, I thought you have to describe this incident mm. because the reader needs to know mm. that you too mm. are imperfect and a failure. Mm. That way, that it it makes it easier for them to trust you as a narrator. Mm -hmm. They see that you failed too. Mm -hmm. 
So I could not make any sense of what was happening to me, and it worried me, and I thought, I'm a fraud. You know, I just got stuck in this very bad place. Mm. And then I heard a piece of Arvo's music, a uh, very short piece, six or seven minutes, called Contus and Memory of Benjamin Britten. Mm. Arvo never met the British composer Benjamin Britten, but he wrote an, a, a kind of stand-your-hair-on-end mm -hmm. tribute to what Benjamin Britten did as a composer. And somewhere in that six or seven minutes, I understood both the nature of my trespass mm. and the tragedy of my failure. Mm. And I can't today explain how the piece of music helped me put things back together inside myself. And as it happened, somebody wanted Arvo Perret and I to, to work together and um, we met on the Oregon coast to have that discussion. Mm -hmm. And I explained the depth of my gratitude to him for that piece of music alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's difficult to live with in America is um, the emphasis we put on the self and the achievements of the self when we know, I think, deep inside, this is the wrong way to go. Mm -hmm. The encouragement of charismatic personalities or the way many people today are determined to make themselves look interesting mm. or this is all counterproductive. The, the idea is to work together. But the point I'm trying to make is in order to make a more just world, mm. It's, it's necessary to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it struck me very forcefully that among Native peoples that I'd traveled with, I've been doing this a long time, yeah. and I do not want to be something other than what I am. I don't want to join some other culture, but I, I want to learn from other cultures. You know, uh, one way to say it is uh, the nature of God mm -hmm. and the divine. Mm -hmm. And you can't have that kind of conversation with everybody, uh, in a culture, but sometimes you do meet people whose quest mm -hmm. is unification with the divine, and mm -hmm. it's it's good to sit together and share a meal and and talk about what might have worked, you know, mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. uh, theologians talk about agape, the mm. the love of the divine in another human being, mm -hmm. and I I don't know if I, this is wrongheaded. It just occurs to me to say that my, uh, I have been steeped for many years in, in, in some kind of intercourse with a non-human world. And it is, for me, characterized by this love, by agape, the, mm. the sense of a world larger than the self that can be, for some people, not everyone, can come brilliantly to life mm. in the non-human world. Mm. And that's, you know, just speaks to the fact that we're, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've noticed with traditional cultures, and by that I mean ones that do not have the forms of government that we have in the West, but instead have a social arrangement in which elders make the decisions. Mm. Not an elder, but elders, mm -hmm. group of people. And the foundation, first of all, an elder is virtually uh, selfless. Hmm. They're, they're people who, in the idiom of the day, have gotten over themselves mm -hmm. and 
truly serve something outside themselves. Mm. They make decisions based on the patterns they observe in the in social movements around them and in the natural world and the connections between biology and social organization and mm. things like that. But the the goal for them is stability. Mm. They make decisions that will ensure stability and they're guided by a, th a thought you could characterize as, as whatever decision we make, we cannot leave anybody behind. Mm. You can't make a decision for, around social organization and its disruption by marginalizing any group of people, mm. black people or short people or mm. male people or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. As soon as you start building these hierarchies, your effort is useless. Mm. Either everybody comes through the disaster or none of us really make it. Mm -hmm. And I was, I'm so struck by that because we as a culture in America and in other Western mm -hmm. nations, we're mesmerized by charismatics who say, I know what the answer is mm -hmm. and follow me mm -hmm. and look where, look where that's gotten us. So when I'm, when I'm traveling with indigenous people, I'm really trying to think what do you know that I don't know? Hmm. And if I could learn that and make a story out of it, hmm. then people who are smarter than I am or more adept at establishing policy or something hmm. will have a better chance. Mm -hmm. my, my job is not to tell people what to do. In the Eastern Arctic, there's a language, Inuktitut mm -hmm. is the language. And my, it has been my habit when I travel to ask people when you use the word storyteller, what does that what does that mean? Hmm. What, what what is a person who is a storyteller? What is their function in 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 your society? And in Inuktitut, the the word for storyteller is isumatuk, hmm. and it means, or my translation of it is, the person who creates the atmosphere in hmm. which wisdom reveals itself, hmm. meaning. It's not about the writer. Mm -mm. It's not about the artist. Mm -mm. It is about the music or the photograph or the painting or the choreography or the novel or whatever it is. And that thing mm. must make uh, the mystery, of the fundamental mystery of life mm. clearer mm. for a reader or a viewer. And in, in my world, it also has to enhance the reader's sense of self-worth, mm. of not being marginalized, mm -hmm. of being important, because we live in this world where many people are left behind mm. without the wherewithal to protect themselves. So that that was something that I learned from different traditional people about what my responsibilities were. Mm. Um, you know, I, I graduated, you know, I went to a Jesuit prep school here in the city. Mm-hmm in New York, and I went to, uh, uh, got two degrees at the University of, of Notre Dame. But when I, I finished the, that master's degree, I thought, I think I must have missed the whole thing, <laughs> that I was educated in one sense, but I didn't know very much about the world because no. I went to, to school with people just like me, mm -hmm. male, middle class, Catholic, etc. Et hmm. So I scratched my head figuratively and said, how in the world do you think you got 
-hmm. You can call yourself an educated person when everything hmm. everything you've been exposed to is all about you anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's part of what pushed me to, to get out of my comfortable middle class place and find out what's going on in the rest of the world mm. and believing that there was goodness and wisdom there mm -hmm. so that the strictures that are sometimes rigidly enforced in a Christian education or upbringing seemed short-sighted to mm. me. It, it seemed that the effort should be, you know, kind of, well, I don't know if this is true, but I was about to say the the wisdom is not the way the Desert Fathers went about it, hmm. which is to isolate yourself from humanity and hmm. and develop a, a pure relationship with the divine. Mm -hmm. But the divine began to seem to me that which is found only in the company of mm. other people, but especially not people like you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So... I have, I had, I begin to, I began to have questions about the limits of my education, and then spent the last forty years or so trying to, to see, see beyond it. Hmm. It's so interesting to me that um, I hope you don't mind me saying I know you once considered a monastic vocation. I did, yes. And it's, uh, Thomas Merton comes up several times right. throughout the book, but I think even he realized surrounding myself, immersing myself in a tradition that just confronts me with myself is not going to get me anywhere beyond no. myself, which is really where I want to go. No. Um, when, when I finished that second degree at Notre Dame, I thought my calling is really to spend my life in a monastery. Mm -hmm. And I knew about Gethsemane where Merton was. So I went there just sort of get the lay of the land. Mm. And it, it was a, a elevating experience to come down in the morning and see these muddy boots lined up outside the mm -hmm. chapel and all of these men in immaculate white mm. clothes and the, their uh, farm jackets hung on the hooks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this, this, is, this is it. <laughs> this is it for me. Yeah. You know, physical labor and uh, a life of contemplation and, mm. and um, seeking uh, an uh, enlightened connection with the divine. But it wasn't. I, I I got a very clear message, I think, when I was there. This isn't for you. We have something else for you, mm. kind mm -hmm. of thing. And Merton kept turning up in my world in, in striking ways. And once I was in Bangkok, where he died, mm. and... Uh, I was I was flying all over the world at that time uh, in air freighters, mm -hmm. writing about consumption and things. And uh, I was at the end of a long run or something. I was really worn out. And uh, so I went, I left the airport uh, in Bangkok with uh, the crew and we all went into town, had a nice hotel where we were going to overnight. And uh, so I got into my room and it was it was really hot outside, but it was cool in the room. Mm. And I saw this big, comfortable bed and the terry cloth robe laid out on it. And I took a long, hot shower and and came out and was toweling off and looking through these windows that, that were semicircle in the room that looked out on the pool. So I was watching mm. all of these children running up and down and shouting and jumping in the pool. 
It was uh, human beings at, uh, um, in, in that state of joy and exuberation and playfulness. Hmm. So I'm, I'm standing there. I haven't got the robe on. I've got the towel around my neck. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I decided it was just a bit humid in the room, so I should turn the fan on. And I turned around like this and reached for the pull string on the standing mm-hmm. fan mm-hmm. and at the same moment looked at the floor and yes, I was standing in a puddle of water. Mm-hmm. So that's how Merton, you know, that's how he died yeah. in a hotel room in mm-hmm. Bangkok. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean about every once in a while I feel this little tap on my shoulder. It's like uh, one of the... Um, one of the older players tapping the young rookie on the exactly. shoulder and saying, stay with it. <laughs> stay with, stay with stay, your task. Stay, stay with, with your task. Yeah, yeah, with your vocation. I thought we could end on, uh, there's a beautiful note that you strike at the end of the book uh, where you're in Chile in a place called the Puerto del Hambre, uh, yeah. uh, which I think is translated a famine, a port famine. Yeah, port famine. Port famine, it's called. And you visit um, this chapel that was constructed I think you say only about 50 years ago, yeah. which is kind of a folk religion yes. uh, space. Right, uh, and but, you, but you, Christian. But Christian. Yeah. And you evince a kind of deep respect for it. Yes. But at the same time, you point to its limitations. And yes. I, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a bit about that story and the man that you saw on the road. That was a, it was and is a mystery for mm. me. I was driving from Punta Arenas to Port Famine, and a beautiful day, broken skies and you know, rainbows kind of things mm. around, or the weather in which you would expect to see a rainbow. And uh, driving slowly, 20 miles an hour or something like that, just mm. taking it in this, this this panorama I had probably at an altitude of 800 feet mm. just above the coastline, looking out over Tierra del Fuego. Mm. I was in ecstasy. And I looked up on this dirt road, and I saw a man walking toward me. And there's there's nothing around. You couldn't. Where did he come from? You know. Mm-hmm. So I was so riveted by him. Mm-hmm. I just let. I just took my foot off the accelerator, I guess, and just let the vehicle roll to a stop. Put the clutch in and let it roll to a stop. And he kept coming toward me, very determined man. But as he passed within, you know, three or four feet of me, hmm. he never looked at me, never said anything to me. But what I had seen when he was still walking toward me is a rainbow opened up hmm. above his mm-hmm. head. And that, that's what caused me to stop. What is going to come now? Hmm. And, you know, you had that feeling, this is a holy thing. And what is it? What is it? What what am I trying to understand here? So he walked past. And I said to myself, whatever this is, this is the end of the book. So this is 1991, Hmm. 20 years ago almost, Hmm. or or 30 years ago. Hmm. I I knew that that was where the book would end. But I, I didn't know what it meant. I felt that a door had opened, and in that moment I chose not to go through. And the way I understood the door was step into the wordless, step into the evaporation of the self, hmm. become one with what lies on the other side, or don't go in, but 
it's kind of a bodhisattva thing, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you, it, you refuse to go into mm -hmm. the holy because you're, you don't want, you want everyone to go in. Mm -hmm. So that's giving me a lot of credit for thought that I didn't have at the moment. I right, right. Confused. So I went back to my room in Punta Arenas and wrote a little bit about it. And when I was actually writing the end of the book, I went back to that journal and found that day and realized that I had gotten the color of his shirt wrong. Hmm. So I had to that let me correct that in, in the book. I, I went on from that encounter to the chapel and I was overwhelmed with tenderness for people who were desperate in one way or another and asking the Blessed Mother for hmm. intercession and pinning up these milagros mm -hmm. that the miracles, yeah, right that that rep, that represent their plea for succor for the, mm -hmm. their plea for an easing of their burden, mm -hmm. and the, the feelings, as I say, that came up out of me were feelings of compassion and tenderness and the the, no, the feeling that you would just embrace everyone there to to say we don't be afraid we're in this together we will all be taking care of each other and we are in the presence of the divine here as ordinary as the moment seems mm. with these simple benches in this little chapel mm. and people of no material means and it is out of that feeling of tenderness that I thought, um, what is out there that is calling to us? Mm. What is the music that is coming from the far side of the horizon? Mm. What is it saying to us? Because I wanted to leave the book with the reader thinking, what am I to make of this? Because this feels like where I am and what I want to do. The, the accumulation of material wealth which was never a good idea, mm. is for all intents and purposes, it's over now. Mm -hmm. the, what we were taught, what we're talking about, is survival and the elevation of the spirit, and cooperation and the cardinal virtues, mm. of justice and compassion, and that's what our stuff is now. It's not this ridiculous accumulation of material wealth. Mm. So. I'm hoping that that answers a little bit about what, what happened on the road that day. And for me, not, <laughs> not incidentally, the, the birds that were played mm. through that whole scene, mm -hmm. that, that for me is my particular road into the divine. Mm. This driving along that road alongside a fence and every fourth or fifth fence post had a caracara mm -hmm. sitting on mm -hmm. it watching me. Six, seven birds, I can't remember now. Everyone has the, the path for them to enter the numinous landscape of the divine. And mine happened to be provided throughout my life by wild animals. Mm. It, it's not... It's just what I what I knew that mm -hmm. you know, and in some way, as I would say, it's all I knew. Mm. So throughout the book, I so much of what I want to say, I can't say without making reference to an incident with an animal. Mm -hmm. 
but that's not a promotion of, of natural history. No. It's, it is a, a metaphor that I understand well enough to be able to write with some kind of insight. Mm. Somebody else can do the same thing here by having a greater sensitivity to the, to the numinous quality of, of cities mm -hmm. than, than I do. Mm -hmm. So we're just, you know, it's, it's one book and one person wrote it and uh, God willing, uh, there'll be another book from somebody else that will, <laughs> that will open up the numinous for people who don't have any interest in reading what I have to say. There's a, it reminds me of the beginning of Dante's Paradiso where he says, what I'm going to say is just a simple light or a spark, but my hope is that other sparks is going to start a fire yes. and a great conflagration a will follow. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you for reminding me. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>